Hello, my name's Frank and I'm the host of the UFO Thinker podcast. I'd always been mildly interested in UFOs, but like many people, the events of 2017 ignited a fire of curiosity for the UFO topic, which has been raging ever since. I wanted to start a podcast, but initially thought, well, I'm not an astrophysicist, I'm not a fighter pilot, and I've never even seen a UFO. I'm just a normal guy who's interested in this mystery. But that's when a light bulb went off. There are so many other people just like me who are fascinated with this stuff. So why not start a podcast to talk about it from the ordinary guy's perspective? All the BS stripped away, as a few people have said. And let's see if we can get to the truth in all of this. Thanks to everyone who's been on board with the journey so far. It's been amazing to see so many listeners tuning in. And if you're new here, welcome. You can now support the podcast on Patreon with tiers starting from £3 per month. The podcast will always be 100% free, but supporting the show in this way allows me to devote more time and make the show bigger and better. Higher tiers also include special benefits such as being able to suggest episode topics and get merchandise. And I really truly appreciate every listener whether you support on Patreon or not. So now with all of that said, let's get into today's episode. Okay, so I'd like to welcome to the show today, Ross Coltart. How are you today, Ross? I'm very well, Frank. It's uh, it's one of those miserable summer's days here in Sydney. We've had so far in the last year or two, fires, plague, and no uh, floods. So I'm waiting for pestilence to start coming over the horizon. Maybe the four horses of the apocalypse. <laughs> yeah, it's basically only floods that we get over here in the UK, the north of the UK. Very rainy. So. Uh, we're having shocking floods here. Um, poor old Sydney's been completely flooded. Really? Oh, dear. Well, I usually do a little intro, but I, I, you don't really need an introduction, mate, but I'll give you one anyway. So you've been doing high-quality research in the UFO topic for a while now, and you, your book, In Plain Sight, made a, a huge impact jam-packed full of important information and more recently you've been working on your excellent new podcast need to know with bryce sable which i recommend everyone should check out if you haven't already so we seem to be entering a bit of a new era in the ufo topic with more and more people stepping out of the shadows and we have this new uap office being established through the gillibrand amendment is the time of the secret keepers coming to an end? Are the public going to find out at least some of what's really known on the UFO topic? Do you know, I actually doubt it. I really do. I mean, it just seems preposterous to me that after uh, what I'm convinced now is seven decades of cover-up uh, by certain individuals inside the, the US defense intelligence establishment, I, I really doubt very much that we're suddenly going to get full candor about what's going on. My take on it is that what we're going to get is something much more limited. We're going to get concessions. We've already had some, of course, because the mere fact that the Pentagon has admitted that the phenomenon is real is a double backflip with Pike on everything they've been saying for three or four decades previously. 
I mean, every since, ever since uh, the end of Project Blue Book in 1969-1970, the standard position of your military in the UK, the Australian military, the American military, most of the Western Alliance militaries around the world, has been to dismiss the phenomenon, to dismiss UAPs, UFOs, whatever you want to call them, as no national security threat, whatever they are, and no threat to flight safety. But as of last year, in a definitive way, the Congress was told by an official UAP task force founded inside the Pentagon, inside the office of the Undersecretary of Defense, Intelligence and Security, it was formally admitted in a complete reversal of that position that UFOs, UAPs are a potential threat to national security and they are definitely a threat to flight safety. And so now it's been acknowledged that this is an issue. There are these stringent statutory requirements that have been imposed by legislation in the Congress for every arm of the intelligence and defense community and other government departments in the US to make full and thorough reports about what they know. But forgive me for being cynical, I don't think we're going to get told about crash retrievals. I don't think we're going to get told about um, if there is such a thing, you know, recovered alien life. I mean, I, I really doubt it very, very much, even though you've got people like Lou Elizondo, Senator Harry Reid before he passed, uh, and others, Dr. Eric Davis, talking quite candidly and openly and, and sources privately telling me as well that there is definitely a history of crash retrievals and that the United States has been attempting to back engineer this technology for decades. I don't think at the moment they want that story out. And I think with the declining geopolitical situation and the catastrophic lurch and security problems in the world right now, I think that may very well end up being used as an excuse to keep the issue suppressed for a little while longer. Hmm. Yeah, I've heard you mention a little bit uh, about that recently in some of the uh, interviews that you've that you've done. I think it was the one that you did on on uh, Need to Know. Actually, um, do you think it's just a case of the they're not going to be willing to talk about things that have happened in the past because there's too much kind of people to blame tied up in all of that? Look, so I think it's perhaps- partly that, Frank. I think, frankly, uh, Chris Mellon, the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defence, who's one of the people pushing, one of the proponents for transparency. Uh, He's been quite open about the fact that he thinks crimes have been committed. And and he should know because he was on the oversight committee as a staffer, the Senate Intelligence Committee, uh, 25, 30 years ago, when they were trying to dig into this subject matter. He was trying to find out if there was any truth to the claims about the Aurora craft that was allegedly witnessed over the UK, over the North Sea. And uh, he was, he believes, possibly lied to. And uh, it's interesting because um, people have misled the Congress and that's a contempt of the Congress. It means crimes have been committed. And more importantly, there's abundant evidence now to show that illegal intelligence operations and disinformation operations have been run against American citizens. I mean, the Paul Benowitz story that's very, very well told by certain researchers where um, People conspired to mislead and disinform an American citizen to try and distract him from what was going on at an Army Air Force base. Um, That's a classic example uh, of the American government doing the wrong thing. And look, 
I, I don't want to make excuses for them, but at the same time, if I was the American president and I knew that my country had come into possession, let's say hypothetically, of an alien spacecraft, which I'm reasonably sure they have, <laughs> I, I wouldn't be broadcasting it to the world, not, not at the moment. I mean, if, if I knew that Russia, and they have allegedly, recovered um, uh, material for non-human technology uh, and possibly also China, uh, I, I think I'd be keeping it secret and I'd be trying to develop it in the black, uh, trying to develop a technology that would give me a cutting edge in defence uh, because essentially it would become a national security priority. And it, it makes sense to me, frankly, Frank, that, um, that, that they're keeping it secret, but that doesn't make it legal. And more importantly, uh, they've crossed the boundaries of propriety because even, I'm told, the committees that operated the oversight of waived, unacknowledged special access programs, even those committees that ought properly to have been briefed on the full story, I have my doubts that they were told the full story. Um, Senator Harry Reid, before he passed, clearly knew something as the Senate Majority Leader in the, uh, in the Senate in the US, um, and he was one of the gang of nine, if you like, who were entitled because of his position on various committees, to be briefed into uh, these waived, unacknowledged special access programs, the biggest secrets of all, if you like, in the US government. But I've got my doubts that, that these things were even properly disclosed in those oversight committees, because people I've spoken to who tell me they should know about them tell me they don't. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, speaking of the... The, the secret keepers I mean it's 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 pretty it's pretty clear now that that something big is is being covered up I mean we've got too many people have, have come out high level intelligence military officials come forward to say there really is something going on here like you said the Pentagon themselves have officially admitted that there's things in the skies they don't understand you know the, the question I have is, what 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 do you think the extent of the cover up actually is? The, these people in the know, do you think they know the full extent of what's going on, or do, they, do you think they perhaps only know a bit more than what's well, public? It depends knowledge? who you're talking about. If I mean, obviously, people in the know is a very broad section of people. I mean, if you're talking about, for example, the commander in chief of the United States, the president, who is nominally at the top of the American Constitution, the commander of the armed forces of the U.S. I think presidents know bugger all, and I think very few of them have actually been read into these programs. And that's one of the issues of accountability and transparency that's at the forefront of this. It's clear to me that both Trump, Obama, Clinton have received briefings because they've referred to their knowing things that they're not allowed to talk about. So I think there has been, to some degree, a disclosure to some American presidents. But, for example, um, one of the bits of research I do in my book, In Plain Sight, is I go and talk to uh, the lawyer who worked with the Jimmy Carter White House in the 1970s, who uh, is named Dan Sheehan. He's now Lou Elizondo's lawyer. He's a very well-known and very well-respected American civil rights lawyer. And Dan Sheehan told me the most extraordinary story, which um, I've uh, basically chased down and attempted to verify. 
And uh, essentially, he was brought into uh, an investigation that was done secretly by the Jimmy Carter White House Science Advisory Group into what was known about the UFO phenomenon. And Jimmy Carter had asked for a report as president. And he says that at one stage, he insisted that if he was to take part in this investigation, he should be given access to what he'd referred to as the, un- uh, as the classified, the still secret files of Project Blue Book. And uh, initially, he was told there was no chance he'd get that, that they'd keep it secret. But then he was told he would be given access on one day, on a weekend, in the Madison Building at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. And he tells this very dramatic story of how he was um, uh, walking up towards the entrance of the Madison Building on a early Saturday morning in 1973, and basically... uh, There in front of him are two G-men in black suits and they take him downstairs under high security into this still uncompleted building. And there in a basement, he was literally given access to what apparently are still classified files of Project Blue Book, which when he started going through them, he looked for photographs because there were so many documents in them and he realised he couldn't possibly read everything in one day. And so he just started fast spooling through the microfiche reader. And as soon as he saw a photograph, he stopped. And the photograph he was looking at was a photograph of American soldiers dressed in 1940s uniforms. There was a 1940s movie film camera clearly visible. They were clearly recording what they were doing. And what he was looking at was a crashed lenticular disc-shaped craft that had crashed in a snowdrift. It had uh, writing, hieroglyphic writing of some kind along the top of the cupola, the dome on the on the vehicle. And he was left in absolutely no doubt in his mind that this was some kind of non-human space vehicle that had been recovered by the US military. Now, the most important thing, the reason why I'm telling you this story is because he got to see the reports that subsequently were sent to the president, Mr. Jimmy Carter. And you know what? There was nothing in those reports about what he'd seen. He wasn't told about that information. So what has been withheld from presidents? I think the evidence is abundant that presidents have been misled and they've been lied to. I think the last president that knew all was George Bush Sr., who was a former director of the CIA and who, interestingly, when he was the director of the CIA, shortly after Jimmy Carter came into office, he knew Jimmy Carter probably wouldn't like him because he was a Republican on the right. Jimmy Carter was a Democrat on the left. And uh, he was fearful for his job. And so when Carter asked and insisted that he be briefed on UFOs, George Bush Sr., according to Dan Sheehan, who was briefed about this, refused to provide that briefing. The commander-in-chief of the US military was refused a briefing by his CIA boss on UAPs. And he was told that the only way he could get such a briefing would be to go through the Congressional Research Service, which is how Dan Sheehan was retained. Now, I've, I've gone on about this in various podcast interviews, and I've, I'm just gobsmacked that, that it hasn't been picked up by mainstream media, because this is an on-the-record claim by an unimpeachable witness, a very reliable, well-respected civil rights attorney in the United States, who frankly would lose his license to practice if he was caught lying or misleading. I've put these issues to the people who were operating in the White House Space Policy Advisory Unit at the time, 
Nobody has deigned to respond. Even the president, former president, Mr. Carter, has declined to respond. It is quite clear in my mind that nobody is prepared to rebut the claims made by Dan Sheehan that the president of the day was deliberately misled about UFOs, UAPs. He wasn't told about a crash recovery, apparently during the 1940s, by the US Army Air Force. So go figure. I do think the evidence is there if people look that there's been a cover-up, there's been a denial, and there's been some kind of attempt to conceal and deceive. And if it starts at the president, it goes all the way down from there. Yeah. Do you think when Barack Obama, um, as, as kind of jokingly said in in the way that he that he does, that he asked the question of, of where the bodies at Roswell and things like that, but he, he, he wasn't given any answers, do you think he's kind of saying that, that he literally did and didn't get any answers. Well, see, that's a misnomer as well, because yes, there have been occasions, especially when he was questioned by um, Jimmy Kimmel, you know, he, t- he made that great question where he said, Mr. President, you know, if I was the president, my, ba- my hand would still be hot from touching the Bible. I'd zoom into the Oval Office and I would demand to know the secrets of UFOs. And that's where Obama laughs and says, yeah, well, that's, that's why you won't be president. But there's another more recent interview that um, Mr. Obama, President Obama, did with James Corbell, uh, his late show, James Corbell's late show. And he asked the president whether he asked questions about UFOs. And it was a much more senior, serious, a much more sober interview. And in the course of that interview, the president actually admitted he was not allowed to talk about aliens. Mm. Go figure. The president of the United States, Obama, who needed an immediate past president now, was not allowed to talk about aliens. He said, I can't talk about that. Now, that, that to me is a specific admission that there is something in his security of his obligations as a president that he needs to keep secret. Mm. So you think he was probably told uh, to, a, to a limited extent of, of some things that were going on, but even he wasn't given the full picture and he literally just can't even touch on it when he, when he talks. In Frank, I'd be, I'd be speculating, my friend. I honestly don't know. I don't know what Obama's been told. Um, I mean, obviously, um, there's speculation, but I wouldn't want to speculate. But certainly, mm. he's been told something. And whatever it is, it was about aliens. And whatever it was, he's not allowed to talk about it. Now, I I think that's enough clues for anybody to start rattling the cage. I mean, I've I've said this many times. I don't understand why the Pentagon press corps, the White House press corps, don't start asking questions. I mean, there's been one attempt uh, late last year, I think it was, where I think James Kirby, the Pentagon spokesman, was asked, you know, do we have recovered alien craft? And you know what he did? He refused to answer the question. He ducked the question and basically yeah. said he'd get advice on that. And there's been no further response from the Pentagon. So yeah. I clearly know something. And there's this delicate dance going on at the moment where I think the Pentagon now knows the game is up and they're debating to what extent they, they be candid. Now, we started this interview by me saying that I don't think we're going to see a high level of candor, a high level of honesty. And the reason why that I think that is because I'm getting feedback uh, from my own sources that there is um, obstruction inside the US Air Force in particular and the CIA 
the two uh, main arms of the US government that are allegedly responsible for trying to conceal most of this, um, they are allegedly putting up obstruction to the people in the UAP task force who are trying to get to the bottom of the matter. And uh, I know uh, Mr. Elizondo, Lou Elizondo, the former head of the Pentagon UAP investigation program, he, he has basically said publicly that he thinks there is a problem, that there is attempts to um, block. And I noticed uh, just the other day uh, there was an article quoting Christopher Mellon, the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defence, and he was saying something very, very similar. You know, we have a problem. Basically, there is a reluctance, there is a, a, a tran- an intransigence inside the um, uh, sections of the US intelligence community and the military who, frankly, I think know that their butts are going to get roasted against a warm brazier for lying and deceiving. I, I mean, I, there's just no other interpretation unless they can demonstrate that they've been legally withholding information because of some presidential executive order. I mean, what if, for example, and this has been speculated about, what if back in 1947, President Harry Truman made a decision that no future presidents should be briefed about these craft that had been recovered because it was such an important secret to the United States and that no future president would be briefed until we were close to being able to use and employ this technology for national security purposes. I mean, I think that would have been an outrageous executive order if that was true, but there has been speculation that an order like that might have been made. We just don't know. But I I can't think of any legal basis upon which this could legitimately have been kept secret, and neither can a number of the people that I've been speaking to who who doubt very much that there is any solid basis for keeping it secret. The best explanation that I've heard is that there's just an unwillingness to concede that, well, yeah, hey, you guys, we have been lying to you for 25, 30 years or longer, and, um, you know, the bottom line is uh, we don't really want to talk about it. I say 25, 30 years because really the whole issue of crash retrievals and crash craft recoveries, it only really came out in the 1980s uh, when the Roswell story first surfaced. I mean, people forget that essentially from the moment of the Roswell crash in 1947 through to around about 1979, 1980, um, nothing really was said apart from a couple of books that were written um, that didn't get much traction at the time, the, the, I think the Scully book. But, um, uh, you know, really the, the issue didn't really take off until the 80s. But I, when I do think that there's an abundance of evidence to show that there's been a cover-up and um, I just don't think unless people actually start rattling the gates and demanding information, I don't think you're going to get governments owning up to their lies. Governments don't own up to lies. Governments lie all the time, believe me. Uh, look, I mean, look at the Iraq war. Are you trying to tell me that the United States didn't know that Saddam Hussein didn't have weapons of mass destruction? I mean, there were people inside the CIA and other agencies who were actually warning about that and saying, you know, we, do, we don't think Saddam does have WMDs. We think the evidence is pretty weak. We don't think you can rely on this defector who's claiming all of these things. But there was a willingness and a, a desire to, to engage and go to war in the Middle East. So if you can lie about that sort of thing, you can lie about whether or not you've recovered non-human technology. Yeah, I, su- I suppose the, the potential justification would be, I mean, it's it's such a 
a massive thing, isn't it? I mean, like even when I, I have a podcast talking about UFOs, but if you just kind of step back from it for a second and think about the possibility of a, a non-human piece of technology having having crashed or landed on this planet is just enormous isn't it it's a very exciting thing i mean I, this is the other thing too one of the excuses that's often used or cited by people um claiming to speak for say the u.s air force is that they they made the decision and i, I know there was a a rand institute inquiry that was done in the 1970s where they they asserted that the public would be genuinely terrified if they knew that there was a an extraterrestrial presence on planet earth uh, now assuming that that's the case i preface everything here by saying that you know assuming that that is the case because we don't know for sure mm. um I don't think at all the public would be perturbed. A lot has happened in the last 50, 60 years. Um, our, our whole generation uh, is very much, I think, acclimatised to the notion that we are not alone. I mean, the evidence is overwhelming. The Fermi paradox would demonstrate, you know, the evidence is overwhelming that there almost certainly must be profuse life on other planets and other parts of the world uh, in other parts of the galaxy or the universe you know the statistical probability is it's more likely than not much more likely the issue is have we been visited by extraterrestrial intelligences and have they left some of their technology here with us um the uh the answer is um we don't know for sure uh but uh, you know frankly um I, I, I think that, you know, the lies that have been told to try and justify keeping it secret, that somehow people would be too frightened to know about it, that it would offend religions, I think they've all done their dash, frankly. I mean, I, I think people are ready. They're actually quite open to the idea. In fact, mm. surveys that have been done in the United States by very reliable survey companies have shown that most Americans think the American government is covering up stuff about UFOs. There's a vast proportion of people who do believe that there is a conspiracy to conceal what the US government knows about the phenomenon. And frankly, they should believe that because the evidence is overwhelming even on the official record. Even the official documents released by the CIA, by the Defence Intelligence Agency, the NSA, they show that there's been a clear pattern of disinforming the public, of the use of ridicule, stigma, taboo, to try and discourage people from ask, asking questions about the phenomenon. Why did the US Air Force make the decision after Project Blue Book, and indeed actually after the Condon report, why did they make the decision, and it's there in black and white, that it was necessary to ridicule this subject and to marginalise people who raised it. Why was that decision made? The excuse that's been used is that for some reason uh, people reporting UFOs was clogging up the reporting procedures for the sightings of anomalous objects that might be Russian or Chinese you know, incursions into the US territory. And the claim was made that, that in order to protect the reporting, they were discouraging people from reporting UAPs. But you see, that's just nonsense. Because frankly, mm. any government would want, and this is what's come out now with the Pentagon, now that they've been forced to basically admit that they've been seeing these objects for years, by definition, any anomalous object that is clearly intelligently controlled, some kind of technology operating in a sovereign country's airspace, until we know what it is and what its intentions are, it is, by definition, a threat. 
You know, so, so of course, the US Air Force, the intelligence community, the Defense Department, of course, they've been concerned about these things. And this specious notion that you should delineate between UFO reports and other incursions into the airspace because UFO reports won't be taken seriously by the military is complete nonsense. And that's been borne out now by what they've admitted in the documents that have been declassified and, more importantly, by the report that's been tendered in the Congress. Yeah, so let's let's stick with uh, crash retrievals for a minute because it's something I really wanted to speak to you about. Uh, obviously, you've you've talked in your book and, and on numerous interviews about various really reliable sources that you've spoken to um, about multiple craft being recovered um, that are not of this world. And, and obviously then the, the logical thing that would be done with that technology would be to try to reverse engineer it and learn something about it. My question is, how successful do you think those efforts to reverse engineer this off-world technology have actually been? Well, that's a really interesting question. Uh, as you know, in my book, In Plain Sight, I talk about a chap I tracked down called Nat Kobitz, who I'm allowed to name because he was prepared He was prepared to go on the record. Nat was the former director of science technology development for the US Navy, their chief geek, their chief R&D guy. And after I'd got to know him over a period of several months, he opened up to me about the fact that he said he was briefed into, he was read into, given the briefing, the security briefing, about a very sensitive secret held inside the United States government that the US is in possession of multiple retrieved non-human craft. And he said multiple. Now, he never got to see these craft, which is why I'm still talking hypothetically because he's not on the record saying that he actually saw these craft. But he says he was shown a piece of bulkhead at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, the apocryphal Foreign Technology Division. Uh, under high security, he was taken there because he was an expert in metal bonding. And he was asked whether the type of bonding that he saw on this, what he described as a bulkhead, could conceivably be explained by some kind of human technology. And he said he was absolutely stunned by what he was looking at because it was a layered technology of literally layers, a molecular layering of atoms of metal that were connected in a way that he'd never seen before. It wasn't a weld. It wasn't some kind of casting. It was a, a level of bonding that he'd never, ever seen before, latticing at the atomic level. Now, he put me on to other people who asserted to me that they were aware of or working in what is euphemistically known as the program. And it's a very small, very trusted, very highly secure group of people who are allegedly working on retrieved alien technology. Now, as I say this, I think to myself, oh, my God, my credibility as a journalist is about to go for rock bottom as I make this assertion because it's not me making this assertion. And, and there's a tendency, I think, in mainstream media just to mock the whole idea that this might conceivably be true. But this assertion, my friend, has been made by no less a newspaper than the New York Times in July of um, either 2020, 2021, 2021, I think it was. Um, they made the assertion that they were aware of claims that people had been briefed into crash retrieval programs. 
And I've spoken to people in the Congress and the Senate who've basically told me that they are aware of briefings that were held where congressmen were basically told about crash retrievals. They were shown videos of non-human technology operating in our atmosphere. This is amazing stuff. And so the, the, the issue is, frankly, how much are we ever going to get told about it? I think very little, as little as possible. Because frankly, if I was the spy chief in charge of all of this, that's exactly what I would do. And one of the things people don't realize is these um, these programs operate under intense secrecy. Even if you know about them, you're obliged to lie to conceal them because that's the honor, that's the term of your security oath. You're under a national security obligation to lie about them. So... You know, I, I don't think you can you can expect the American public or the, the international public can expect any kind of candid disclosure where the president stands at a podium and says, "Ladies and gentlemen, I uh, just want to tell you we've been lying to you for the last seventy-seven years. We did indeed discover an alien spacecraft at Roswell, and we've got quite a few more tucked away in a shed in Alien Area Fifty-One." I don't think you're ever going to see that. And I think the UFO community is kidding itself if it really thinks that they're just going to be served this information on a plate. I think what you're going to see is an admission that there is a genuine mystery. We're going to be told that, oh, my goodness, there may very well be alien life. Oh, my mm. goodness. And goodness me, here's some of this technology we've discovered that may, in fact, be non-human technology. Wow, this is exciting. This is a brand new discovery, and we're going to go off and try and find out all about it. That's the pitch. I don't think you're going to say, get a, 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 an expose of multiple crash recoveries, you know, um, uh, Roswell, Chihuahua, Aztec, you know, Del Rio. You know, no, nobody's going to basically come and tell you about all of these crash recoveries if they happened and candidly admit that they've got these spacecraft. Now, what I can tell you to get to the detail of your question is the people that I have engaged with give varying stories. Some people I've spoken to, the vast majority, the people I, I suspect are most credible, say that the attempts to back engineer this technology have not been hugely successful hmm. because the entire program is being constrained by absurd secrecy. And it's interesting because I think the most telling aspect about the patents that were taken out by the US Navy on behalf of inventions allegedly discovered by Dr. Salvatore Pei uh, at the um, US Navy's Patuxent Research Laboratories in Washington, DC a few years ago, they made patents for a force field generator, a fusion reactor, a transmedium vehicle, extraordinary claims being made in patent applications. But I suspect that what's happening is after decades of attempting to back engineer this technology unsuccessfully, or maybe they've acquired aspects of this technology but not yet been able to master particular issues such as energy or propulsion systems, um, I think they're now in a kind of a conundrum where they've realized that possibly the only way that this mystery is ever going to be solved is to be more open and more candid and to bring more members of the scientific community in to actually investigate it. Because that's what makes good science. I mean, the Manhattan Project at its peak 
uh, when they were building the atomic bomb in secrecy in New Mexico. It had 10,000 plus scientists working on it. It's astonishing that it was kept secret. I'm told that the program has less than a thousand. And you can't do good science unless you can share that science with good brains all around the world. And I guess it's, it's naive of me at the moment, I think, to talk about this, but frankly, wouldn't it be a lovely thing if instead of highlighting our differences and talking about the war that's going on in the Ukraine right now and the very real possibility of an international conflict that comes out of that, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if the world collaborated on cracking this technology and developed propulsion systems and energy systems that could help all of humanity? Is it just a pipe dream that science might one day collaborate and actually do that? Because the people that I've spoken to say that that's probably what it's going to take to be able to master this technology properly. Because let's assume that it's a technology or a civilization that's thousands of years in the future that's developed what it is that we're trying to replicate. Imagine if, for example, a mobile phone had been dropped in 15th century England and a, a guy in tights and a garter and a codpiece picked it up and basically said, what ho, what, what find I here? What, what in heaven's name would he be able to do with such an object? How would you even begin to attempt to replicate such technology? You know, you wouldn't even know what a battery was. You wouldn't know what plastics are. Um, you wouldn't know electricity. You wouldn't know how to charge it. There's so little that we would know even from 500 years ago. How could we possibly assume that we would be able to understand and replicate a non-human technology that is thousands of years in the future? Hmm. Yeah, one thing you mentioned there, Ross, as well, just before I forget, is the uh, the thing about the patents. And um, I've heard you talking about this recently as well. I think one of the things that was really interesting is that they had to prove that the, the technology was viable. Is that right? So in other words, they had some kind of working version of the technology in order well, to be able well, to... Well, more importantly than that, Frank, the, the amazing thing about the, um, the US Navy's support for these patents, and I know... Um, Dr. Pei, I've been talking to him quite a bit. Um, the amazing thing about the US Navy's support for these patents is that assertions were made by Dr. Pei's commander, James Sheehy, who was the commander of this particular science laboratory unit. He asserted that various aspects of this technology were, quote, operable. Yeah. A flat assertion. Now, I've got a background in the law before I became a journalist, and one of the things you learn about patents is that if you make untrue statements in your patent application, that patent is essentially voided. So I don't know what the US Navy was thinking if they're lying, but you have on the record, and I detail this in my book, you have on the record assertions by the US Navy commanders that Dr. Pei has cracked it, that he's developed a force field generator and a fusion reactor, that these are operable technologies. Now, there's a problem because uh, I'm already aware that that um, there's been no demonstration of the workability of this technology done by the US Navy. So I don't know how they could possibly make the assertion that it was operable. And this is a mystery that still has not been explained because it would seem that even though every other government department in the United States and and in democratic countries around the world is obliged to provide democratic accountability to explain its actions, 
that there does not yet seem to have been any explanation emanating from the US military to explain how they can make these assertions. And it's because the whole issue is surrounded by such secrecy. But reading between the lines, my, my guesstimate is, and I've said this in my book, I've speculated that the reason why the US Navy filed these patents is because perhaps they are getting close to cracking this technology, or maybe they know that it's being cracked in the black. And because they know other nations are working on it, like China and Russia, the last thing they want to do is have to pay for the use of a patented anti-gravitic technology propulsion system held by Russian or Chinese scientists. So maybe what this US Navy thing was all about was all about trying to preempt the possibility that the uh, Russians or the Chinese might get there first. But they've still got to prove what they've said. They've still got to prove that they have this operable technology. Is it all a bluff? We just don't know, my friend. That's the big mm -hmm. question. And that's the lovely thing about this whole subject matter is that for me as a journalist, it's just such verdant territory for a good dig. You know, I'm, I'm amazed at how ripe the pasture is for mowing. You know, there's so much there to look at and investigate. And this is one of them. I mean, there are so many contradictory assertions on the public record. You know, on the one hand, you know, in the past, the White House has said categorically in 2011 in a press release put out by uh, President, um, oh, I forgot, oh, President um, uh, Clinton, under the Clinton White House in 2011, they categorically asserted that there was no evidence of extraterrestrial visitations to this planet or contact with humanity. Now, if what we're talking about is true, it means that a president has lied or at least his advisors have lied to the American public. You know, really? Is that is that what Bill Clinton wants his legacy to be? Really? And, and then mm -hmm. you've got these apparent contradictions where now the US is admitting all along that it's been aware of these weird anomalous phenomena for decades. It's been investigating them. It never stopped investigating them. So... It's these contradictions that I drill down into as an investigative journalist, and that, that's what I'm fascinated by, that, that there is this weird um, inability for uh, people to um, analyse the apparent contradictions. And, and essentially, until we basically, as mainstream media, start hammering the powers that be and, and start shouting questions at presidential press conferences and Pentagon press briefings, I don't think this issue will ever get into the mainstream. It'll still be relegated and marginalised as a taboo, stigmatised subject. Yeah. One thing I've been thinking about very recently as well, uh, you touched on this earlier, but I thought I'd save it to come back to. Um, if there has been any progress at all made reverse engineering any of this off-world tech, would it be an ace in the hole type thing where it'd be only deployed in a very specific circumstance? Perhaps, you know, like you touched on a minute ago, to avoid adversaries learning anything to help with their own reverse engineering efforts. And do you think with this, you know, absolutely horrendous crisis which is unfolding in Ukraine, that there could actually be a tipping point where whatever ace in the whole technology exists actually gets deployed? Well, Frank, I bloody well hope they do. If they've got it, I hope they use it. You know, the, yeah. the bottom line is we are at a more dangerous period in our history right now than the year that I was born, 1962, which is the year of the Cuban Missile Crisis. I was born 
the year that the world last came so close to nuclear war. And I can, I've read and studied the whole history of the JFK White House's efforts to try and avert war. And any president that had weaponry that could humiliate and bring down an enemy as quickly as this type of weaponry could do. I mean, this is the thing about this technology. If it's true that the United States has this technology and that it has cracked it, and I'm not sure that it is, I think they have this technology, but I don't think that they've cracked it. Don't you think they bloody well use it? Mm. And and frankly, I, I, I like to hope that they do have this technology and that they would deploy it if they could. But I think we would have seen it before now if they had it. I really do. And, uh, you know, there, is, there are rumours that, that, that there is this massive back engineering program going on inside the black world in the US. Um, and I've had the opportunity to speak to people who purport to be part of that investigative research process. But none of them have given me any reason to believe that we are, as some nutters choose to assert, flying around the universe and fighting wars in other galaxies. You know, it's ridiculous nonsense. These people who make these ridiculous claims to be part of a space force and, you know, to be secretly deployed for the US government and fighting with aliens over there. It's ridiculous nonsense. There's no evidence mm. for that. I think the reality is that we're um, we're still trying to crack the technology. And, and uh, 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 I mean, the best illustration of what a government would do if it had a super weapon is what happened in 1945. You know, the US government made the decision to deploy a nuclear bomb, an atomic bomb, on both Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, it was the last time that nuclear bombs were used in anger, and hopefully it will be the last time in our history. But um, the, the grim reality is that governments, if they have these weapons, they will use them. And that's why what's going on in the Ukraine is so important right now for the whole UAP issue because it's not looking good for Putin. You know, his troops are surrendering in some cases. They're getting routed in many cases. The technology um, that they're being supplied by the West and the terrain favours an insurgency. And uh, whatever happens, it's going to be a long, bloody, dangerous war for young Russian soldiers. And I was only reading a report this morning in the London Guardian, which was talking about the fact that in all likelihood, there is going to be a dramatic escalation in this war. It's not at all inconceivable that in an effort to try and discourage the West from engaging any further, a embattled Vladimir Putin, desperately undermined at home with the mounting and appalling casualties, might even do a demonstrative nuclear blast in a forest in the middle of Ukraine somewhere, just to tell people, you know, don't screw with me, leave me alone, I'm the Russian leader, I have these terrible weapons, don't screw with me. So frankly, if I was an American strategic planner right now and I had weaponry and knowledge that would allow me to cripple Putin instantaneously, I wouldn't be waiting for him to explode a nuclear device. I'd be doing it now, and they haven't. So this notion that UAPs are going to come galloping over the horizon and save the planet, it's wishful thinking. 
even if there yeah. is a benevolent alien intelligence, I don't think it's all that benevolent. Uh, if, if it is there, I think it's somewhat ambivalent about humanity. They're probably looking down at these crazy apes thinking, why the hell have we helped these guys? <laughs> yeah, I mean, one thing one thing that's 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 becoming kind of clear is that it doesn't seem that the Russians have any operable reverse engineered tech because the the disastrous way that they've that they've been operating so far doesn't hint that that they might have any of that stuff. Otherwise, they would have probably used it. Well, I mean, the bottom line is the lesson of history is that any superior weapon will get used in battle. Mm-hmm. And even though at the time, you know, there was a lot of argument about whether or not an atomic bomb should be deployed. Uh, I mean, literally, it was within weeks of the first Trinity blast that they deployed the atomic bomb at Hiroshima. And there's, as you know, for the last 77 years, been argument and counter-argument about whether or not that was a good decision for the US government to have made. But frankly, they made it. They used it, even in those circumstances because their backs were against the wall. And I think the West is very concerned right now, much, much more than it's publicly prepared to admit. You know, people I'm talking to in intelligence and security, they're openly talking about the likelihood of a third world war, of an international nuclear conflagration. So they want to avoid that at all costs. And so at the moment, the strategy that's being followed is to give these incredibly effective anti-tank weapons, anti-aircraft weapons uh, to the insurgents now, as they will soon become in the Ukraine, as Russia deploys more and more troops to try and take territory by brute force. And frankly, the longer that each week goes by, the more likelihood there is of a dramatic escalation where, a you know, like a rat in a drainpipe, Putin feels cornered and frankly if they were going to deploy that weaponry you'd think they'd want to use it before now Mm. yeah so let's move on Ross because I really want to ask you about this particular point Um, you have mentioned that your sources have confirmed to you that there have been efforts for quite some time I think you said decades to track UAP and even attempt to capture one, sort of bait them in. Have you heard any new developments in that area? And can you elaborate any further on what you have heard? Well, it is a matter of public record. In fact, there are files that have been declassified that show that um, as long ago as the 1950s, the Americans realized that they could detect these objects using particular frequencies somewhere in the area of 3,000 hertz. Um, And I interviewed for my book a communications expert with a top secret clearance called Bob Fish, who uh, was briefed when he was working in a private aerospace company about the fact that this technology was being used, I think, right back in the late 1970s, early 80s, to track objects that were being seen going in and out of the ocean south of Florida. Um, This has been known about for a long time, but... Um, what I, I have already talked about in some other interviews, but um, uh, I don't know a lot more about it than what I can tell you here, is that um, I'm told by multiple sources now that there are ongoing efforts to try to use some kind of electromagnetic disruptive technology to bring down these objects that have been buzzing pilots on the east coast of the United States. And... Um, 
sometime in the middle to late of last year, there was an operation underway to do exactly that. I don't know if it's been successful. I know that it was going to be attempted and there was concern expressed to me by sources that it might be perceived by whatever intelligence was operating those craft uh, as some kind of improper attack. But, um, you know, I think the decision had been made by sections of the military that this was going to be done. I haven't heard any more since then about what progress there's been or whether it's been successful. Have you heard anything about the methods to actually draw out the the UFOs, the, the UAP? Is it anything to do with nuclear propulsion systems on vehicles or perhaps the moving around of, of nuclear weapons? Well, there's two issues there. I mean, the, the, the first is, is that what is beyond that is it's now a matter of official record that the archives of the intelligence community and the defence force in the United States show very, very clearly that there is a... Um, a correlation between nuclear facilities and these objects. And there's an excellent book that I commend to anybody listening called UFOs and Nukes that was written by Robert Hastings, who is by far and away, I think, one of the most exemplary researchers in this field. He's just a phenomenally clever guy. Uh, he was literally, as a 16-year-old boy, sweeping a floor in a radar unit at an Air Force base in the United States when he was shown anomalous objects on a radar screen by one of the guys working the radars in the tower. And because of what he saw on that screen, these objects doing thousands of miles an hour, it woke him up to the fact that these objects were being seen right across the United States. And so he started researching. And the research that he's done in the last 50, 60 years is phenomenal. The public owe him a great debt. He's basically shown by tracking down the alumni who staffed and uh, operated the ICBM, the Intercontinental Ballistic Missile Bases all over the United States. He's shown that almost every single ICBM base and silo, any facility linked to nuclear weapons, has had visitations by these anomalous, intelligently controlled objects. Whatever it is, is definitely taking an interest in nuclear weapons. Now, one of the people that I've interviewed and um, others have spoken to is um, Robert Salas, Bob Salas, who was a, an officer in the US Air Force during the 1970s at the um, Minot Air Force Base when Tenebas missiles were essentially shut down by, he believes, a hovering craft that hovered over his missile silo. And uh, it's really interesting because in the course of my research, I've spoken to people in the uh, former USSR, the former Soviet Union, Russia, who've told me that um, they're well aware of numerous attempts by these objects to either disrupt the operation of these missiles, the nuclear missiles that Russia has, or in one notorious case, which was told by a Russian colonel called Sokolev, a missile was actually cycled up. It broke through whatever it was that was interfering with the technology of the missile, broke through all of the control safe features of the missile to take it to literally one point before it launched. And needless to say, the Soviet operators of the missile were panicking at the time because if that missile had launched, it would have warranted a legitimate Western attack back and there could very well have been a nuclear war. 
And so people like Bob Salas have speculated that what's going on is the intelligence behind these technologies that are, that are interfering with these nuclear facilities is essentially showing us, it's warning us that what we're doing is not safe and that we're essentially playing with fire by operating with these weapons. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I find I have to be sceptical about the anthropomorphizing that we do of whatever alien intelligence it is or it might be that is operating these craft. Why do we assume that they would be benevolent? Why do we assume that they would give a flying fuck about human beings? I mean, seriously. I mean, uh, what 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 makes us think that they would care? Because, you know, they've let us kill each other in wars. They're letting us kill each other in war at the moment. Um, I don't think we can necessarily assume that uh, an extraterrestrial intelligence or a non-human intelligence would be anything other than, frankly, as ambivalent as we are about ants under our feet. Hmm. If they're as advanced as we think they are. It does beg the question, why are they so interested in nuclear capabilities and nuclear weapons and things like that? I don't know. I don't know. But I mean, you know, um, one of the, uh, there's been a huge number of speculations. I mean, nuclear weapons obviously are electromagnetic in, in, in how they're operated. They send out vast emissions of electromagnetic radiation. Maybe they're disruptive to the space time uh, propulsion system under which they operate, or maybe they're causing disruptions in the universe. I've got no idea because we don't even know if they're extraterrestrial off the surf or whether they're interdimensional or whether they're yeah. intradimensional. Are they part of the surf, but we just don't even know that they're there? The bottom line is um, there are some people who've told me that we need to be focusing less on the ETH on the extraterrestrial hypothesis, the notion that whatever these intelligences are, they've come from somewhere else, and that we need to focus more on the intra, that they've always been here, that, that we actually share our planet with them, and mm. that maybe they've been keeping a mildly benevolent eye on us for the many, many thousands of years that they've shared this planet with us. And maybe that's mm. the secret, because maybe what we need to be doing is looking more at the history of ancient civilizations and asking, well, was it really possible for the ancient Egyptians to have built all of these objects that they allegedly built with their civilization at the time? Could bronze adzes really have done what is found in some of the great megalithic ruins around the world? I don't think they can explain it. And one of the things that is unexplained to this day, and modern archaeology is only just starting to wake up to this possibility, is that there is evidence, as I would say, in plain sight, which suggests that megalithic civilizations could not possibly have created some of these objects. I mean, look at the um, Baalbek stone. I think it's a 50-ton lump of rock that's carved beautifully, almost looks like it's been cut like butter, sitting at an angle that's been propped up for thousands of years. Nobody knows where it came from. Nobody knows who cut it. And frankly, nobody knows how it was cut or how it was moved. All around the world, there are these mysteries. And they're right there, sitting under our noses. And we don't really ask. And conventional archaeology struggles to explain. It's quite funny watching Dr. Zahi Hawass, who's the head of Egyptology at the um, Cairo Museum until very recently, trying to squeeze square pegs into round holes to explain how it is that the technology can possibly plausibly be explained by 
Egyptian civilization. It can't. Frankly, it can't. And it begs the question, was there, were there other civilizations or civilization on this planet before ours? Were they eradicated or have they developed to such a level of superiority or an advancement that they're around us, but we just don't know that they're there? I mean, I think we have to keep all options open. What I am sure of, this is the only thing I'm sure of, Frank, is there is an intelligent technology operating in our skies, in our orbit, and under our oceans, and we have no idea what it is. But it's real. That's the big mystery, isn't it? But That's exactly we, we, right. We, we're coming up to, uh, to to running out of time, but just just really quickly to go back to the thing of of the baiting and, and luring of UAP. Have you sort of come across any information about nuclear assets actually being used specifically to actually tempt or lure or bait UFOs? Not nuclear assets. No, no. I mean, I, I, um, I know I'm aware of, um, as I've said earlier, attempts to uh, attract, track, and capture these objects uh, using, uh, my understanding was, some kind of electromagnetic magnetic pulse. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, one of the best ways of developing an electromagnetic pulse is to use a nuclear weapon. <laughs> an but, actual uh, detonation. I, I, I would doubt very, very much that they would deploy a nuclear weapon just to bring down a UAP. Or at least I hope not. But the, and have, um, you heard, uh, have you heard anything relating to anti-neutrinos, something that there's been a little bit of discussion of, uh, the tiny little particles which are apparently given off by some types of uh, nuclear fuel and, and nuclear uh, propulsion systems and things like that? No, I haven't. No, I'm not aware of that. I mean, I know what neutrinos are. I've done my research um, mm. to try and get my brain around the, the new physics. But, um, uh, uh, I mean, w- one of the arguments that I make in my book, by the way, that um, nobody's been able to provide an explanation for is that we now have these gravitational field uh, detectors that, among other things, are looking for neutrinos from distant exploded stars and collided black holes across the universe. And uh, I think we only discovered these neutrinos in 2015 for the first time, and the guy who discovered them made a Nobel Prize. But essentially, if there was a displacement of a gravitational field uh, caused by a craft, you would think it would be detectable by these um, LIGO detectors, these neutrino detectors that are now, or gravitational field detectors that are now being operated by different countries around the world. And we haven't seen that. They're not reporting that they've seen any kind of movement in gravitational fields or you know, displacement caused by particles that might conceivably be explained by some kind of craft using a propulsion technology. So there is a mystery. I mean, we just don't know enough. And that, to me, is half the fun of this story, that that essentially um, we now have an official acknowledgement that the mystery is real. What more do you need? I mean, that's breathtaking. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a... A perfect moment to uh, call it a night for me and call it a morning for you. <laughs> so I'd just Let's like to say thank, thank you very much for joining me, Ross. It's uh, really been a pleasure. 
It's a real pleasure, mate, and thanks to your listeners. And if they want to know more, they can read my book in plain sight. Or if they want to watch the documentary that I made, it's on the YouTube channel, uh, Seven Network Spotlight UFO. Just Google my name, Ross Coulthard, and it'll come up. Perfect. Thank you very much. Good on you, Frank. UFO Thinker Podcast. Podcast.